Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to cover the full chapter of Revelation 1. We talked about part of it last Sunday, but um, we'll treat it as a unit this week. That was a segment we used as part of an overview of this book. And uh, now we're going to get started in this exposition in earnest through chapter 1. Page 1028 in your pew Bible, if you're looking for that. But usually people don't have a hard time finding it. It's the last book of the Bible. Just flip back until you see the beginning of it. <laughs> Listen now to the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, his faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So reads the word of God. Sons of thunder, that was what James and John were called when they first met Jesus. 
There was good reason for that. They were rough and tumble fishermen. But even after they joined Jesus' band of disciples, they still, they didn't do anything gently. John once rebuked a man for casting out demons in Jesus' name. Both of them, James and John together, offered to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village for not being hospitable to Jesus. These guys were all in. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They also asked for the seats of honor when Jesus finally ascended to his throne. That is a pretty bold request. Especially when you're two of 12 close followers. That doesn't put you in very good stead with your brothers, I don't think. But such was the heart of James and John. It's Mother's Day. One of the gospel accounts says their mom asked on their behalf. Um, I won't go into anything related to that, but I did just want to point it out. Over time, they matured. They were with Jesus, for instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. That could change anyone seeing what they saw there that day. And by the time Jesus' earthly ministry was almost completed, John had become his closest friend. He sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the one that, that heard the message of who it was that would betray him. And as Jesus hung on the cross, not long after that, he charged John with taking care of his mother. Some 10 or 15 years later, as we just saw in our study of the book of Acts, James was killed by Herod to placate the non-believing Jews. He was the second martyr in church history, the second martyr recorded in the book of Acts. John's ministry continued on, just as was suggested in John 21, in the close of his gospel. It seems like John, over the years, over the decades, grew into the wise old man of the church. And judging from his letters, he was the one to offer the balm that, that soothed many wounds with his warm but direct pastoral insight and pastoral care. John was the go-to guy. He ended up ministering in Ephesus. We'll say more about that as we move through this book. Even so, some of his old style still came out in Revelation, which we believe he wrote very late in his life. Its language is called barbarous by some commentators in comparison to the writing style of the gospel and of the letters of John, suggesting that he may not even have written this book. But others say the difference in style could have been intentional to gain the reader's undivided attention at key points when there was something important to say. In any case, don't let there be any doubt here this morning that we do believe the Apostle John wrote the revelation. When the church started to feel displeasure from the government again late in the first century, they had felt it under Nero, whose reign was from 54 to 68 in that first century. Now they're feeling it again under the egomaniac Domitian, whose, whose reign went from 81 to 96, right near the end of the first century. When the church started feeling the displeasure of the government once again, John, it appears, certainly felt deeply burdened to encourage and to strengthen them. The problem was, as we just read together, that he was on the island of Patmos. That's recorded in verse 9. And by the way, let me let you know, there's a, we have a longer than normal introduction this morning. This is still introduction. So even though I'm going to refer to the text over the next couple of minutes, we're not actually in the outline yet that's, that's in your bulletin there. I'll let you know when we get there. John was 
in exile on the island of Patmos. That's some 30 miles or so off the Asian coast. Himself a victim of that persecution. So it was very much on his mind and heart on this one particular day. It was a Sunday. While he was in prayer, he was in the spirit, the text says in verse 10. And I'm sure he felt a powerful stirring in his heart that he likely recognized from previous experience. When he was moved by the Spirit to write his gospel and to write those few particular letters. And as he prayed, the text records that he suddenly heard behind him, verse 10, a loud voice like a trumpet. Think of a loud voice like a trumpet. Then take a moment and put yourself perhaps inside a cave in some dark place alone. You're praying and you hear a voice behind you that you would compare to a trumpet. All right? Got it? <laughs> this was a shocking experience for John. We see evidence of that, but we can get so used to the words that they can kind of slip past us unnoticed, this was an absolutely startling experience. Uh, one occasion when I preached this, I read the introduction. He heard behind him a voice that sounded like a trumpet saying, and as I started reading, I did my best imitation of a trumpet-like voice. And the room jumped. The whole room jumped. Imagine being by yourself in a dark place. All right? He heard a voice behind him that sounded like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And what John saw when he turned around, well, that's the beginning of the story. But before we can fully appreciate what he began to write that day in response to this voice, we need to cover just a bit more introductory material. So we're still not in the outline yet. A bit more introductory material that I think is going to be helpful to us as we seek to appreciate Revelation, what's being said here, and how to understand it. Revelation is unique among the books of the Bible. Portions of it are like other books. Old Testament prophecy, especially, and apocalyptic. Some extra-biblical apocalyptic that we mentioned briefly last Sunday. And even New Testament letters. It's got similarities to all of these, but Revelation's combination of all three of these different genres is truly unique in God's Word. It's part of what makes it a challenge to read it and to understand it. So it's challenging to know and read precisely because of this overlapping. That's a big reason why, I believe, four different interpretive approaches have developed throughout history, and I want to walk through those with you right now. I want you to just be aware of them. There are four different ways to read Revelation. There's actually many more than that, but most of them are either one of these or a combination of these. And so I just want you to be aware of them, and the, the definitions will come up. First, the idealist approach, the idealist school of thought, sometimes called symbolic or allegorical. In the idealist school, the elaborate symbols that we see in Revelation are intended to encourage the church during all times of difficulty. So it's not really anchored into history, per se. It reveals general principles of life that assure believers of their ultimate triumph in Christ. But it really is not intended to forecast the future at all or to, to capture the, the, the progression. It's, it's intended to encourage the church. That's one approach, the idealist approach. A second approach is called preterist or preterism. Here the events of Revelation relate to John's day alone. Revelation records the struggle that the first century church had with Judaism and paganism and Roman government. The judgments and the conflicts that John foresaw here in this book 
were completed with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it's entirely a first century book. Revelation then was written prior to AD 70, looking forward to that time. That's the, this particular school of thought. And therefore, very similar to Acts, it becomes more of a descriptive book than a prescriptive one with regard to how we hear it, understand it, preach it, so forth. Third, the historicist school of thought. Revelation in this approach is an encapsulation of church history from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. It looks at the whole window of time. It recognizes specific historical predictions and it generates a, a striking philosophy of history. If you look at the book that way and seek to tie off different portions of it to the progression of church history. We have to add in one thought here though. I haven't critiqued the other systems as I've moved through them but this one is, is quite attractive. Many of the reformers and the Puritans held this view. The problem is that each interpreter tends to draw history to a close in his or her own day. It's amazing how that tendency happens. I took a course when I was in seminary, not, not the more recent time uh, finishing a, a doctor of ministry, but way back when, I, boy, half the room wasn't born at that point, all right? I took a course called um, The Church in the Apocalypse. It was a study of the history of the interpretation of, book of, of the book of Revelation throughout church history. And this is such a striking thing to note. Every generation of the church has believed they are living under the sixth seal. Every generation of the church sees history coming to its end in their day or very soon after. That's not intended to discourage us from that thought. That's just to let us know we're not alone. The church has lived with that understanding of this book through most of the history of the church. I would say through the entire history of the church. The historicist school of thought is a well-established one that has been used by many interpreters through the years, the decades, the centuries, the millennia since Revelation was written. Finally, there's the futurist school, and it's necessary to say that this is actually a more recent approach in the last couple of hundred years, in fact. The futurist approach. From chapter 4 on, Revelation focuses solely on the future. Drawing on Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and Daniel's vision of the 77s. It's looking to apply that. This, this book fills in the details of that period of time. Chapter 6 to 19 then refer to the seven-year period just prior to the second coming of Christ in the futurist school with the emphasis on the latter half of that period. In that period, a, a rapture, a catching away of the church is part of the teaching of futurism and its approach to revelation. That happens at one of several possible places during the final seven years of world history. And we will identify those as we move through it. Different approaches to understanding the rapture. Either it happened at chapter 4 verse 1 or chapter 11 verse 12 or chapter 14 verse 14 or chapter 16 verse 15. Depending on subtle differences within the futuristic system of understanding the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that as we move through it. All right. I've said to you that uh, we're going to be answering questions and I've invited you to write questions either by email to me or to the office or by writing them on a sheet of paper and dropping them in the offering box, trusting that they will get to the right place. I'm guessing that when I make a statement like this, that could generate some questions. So I just want to remind you that that opportunity is there and we'll be trying to do that through the course of this, um, this series. So different systems of interpretation have arisen throughout history, primarily these four, and then any number of others that are some combination of these four. They're the basic approaches, a system that seeks to explain how, how all the symbols and, uh, and images fit together, their meaning, their chronology, and so forth. 
And our ability to read Revelation with profit has almost become tied to our mastery of one or another of these systems. That's what we believe, that our ability to read Revelation with profit has almost become tied to our mastery of one or another of these systems. Like, we need to understand it in order to understand Revelation. We need to know the system in order to read the book. It can seem impossible to us not just to understand or appreciate Revelation. It can seem impossible to us to read it unless we first adopted the details of one of these systems. Listen to me. If you hear one thing this morning, hear this sentence. That is not good. That is not good. And it's really not at all helpful. So what do we do? How do we approach it? Well, folks, that's a great question. Let's get into the text. Let's get into the text. That's always the right answer, isn't it? Get into the text. Don't worry if you don't know a system. Get into the text and begin reading the Word of God. Isn't that just what John is laboring to tell us in chapter 1? Read it! Read it! Read it. If you don't understand it, don't go looking for a system. Read it again. Systems emerge from the reading of the Word of God. That's where good hermeneutics come from. It comes from reading the Word and reading it again and reading it in, in, in its entirety and seeing how it works and then extracting principles from that that help those who haven't had that experience to read with profit as they're getting to know the Word themselves. But even good hermeneutics don't substitute for reading the Word. Read. Read Revelation. And read it again. And read it again. And see if it doesn't start sticking with you. See if you don't start appreciating what it's teaching. See if you don't start hearing worship, obey, endure. As the theme of the whole book. Just see if you don't have that experience. There's only one way that I can guarantee that you won't have that experience is if you don't read it. So what are we going to do? Read the text, right? Are you with me? That's where we're going to begin. That's always the right answer. And we're going to come back to this question about systems in just a couple of minutes because I want to comment on it and say something that I think could be very helpful. It's been very helpful to me with regard to understanding the systems. But let's just walk through Revelation in three steps today. And now we're starting the outline that's in your bulletin. All right? So you'll see opening encouragements and exhortation, verses 1 through 3. Then opening greeting and doxology, verses 4 through 8. Then opening vision and direction, verses 9 through 20. That's where we're headed. Uh, so, opening encouragement and exhortation. And this, especially in the first two of these three points, will include some review from last week could be, because we're covering some of the same material. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, that was our first hint in how to read the book. Revelation is apocalyptic. That meant two things. It reveals or it uncovers the meaning of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it uses a wide range of symbols and images to achieve its purpose. It's apocalyptic. Apocalypse means to uncover, to reveal. And as a writing style, it means that all of these symbols and images are used. So it's a word that really, as we see it on the page, gives us a double meaning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This tells us that this message is about the future. Regardless of the school of thought that we have, it's about the future. It's preparing God's people for what's to come. That's what all four of those systems had in common. But there's something unique about Revelation. It was not intended to be put away until some distant future date like Daniel's final vision was. Do you remember that statement in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4? Seal this up. It's for the end times. God knows how to say that if that's what his intention is for prophecy that's being given to his people. 
Here, he says, read, hear, keep what's written because the time is near. This one is not to be sealed up till some future date. That's really important to understand. Continue on in the middle of verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then now here in verse 3 comes John's own expression of the intended aim. Blessed is the one who what? This isn't rhetorical. Blessed is the one who what? Reads. Who reads aloud. That can be helpful. That doesn't mean if you're reading silently, you're not actually obeying. This should be read and heard within the body of Christ such that people can hear and respond to it. All right? Breast is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So there's a second literary genre then that's identified. We have apocalyptic already. And now here in in verse 1 and in verse 3, we have prophecy. Who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. This identification of revelation as prophecy can help us answer the lingering question we have about systems. Did you hear me? This identification of revelation as prophecy can help us answer the lingering question about systems, how to use these systems, how to process what we learned there about historicist and preterist and idealist and futurist. I'm going to quote from a famous preacher who many of you probably haven't heard of for reasons I'll mention in, in, uh, at another time. But listen to this description. Uh, we'll have a slide with just the latter part of this. But listen to what he says about the four systems. Revelation must be interpreted in a manner consistent with other biblical prophecy. That's what we get by hearing this identified as prophecy. Revelation must be interpreted in a manner consistent with other biblical prophecy. Isaiah can be used as a helpful example. It certainly, Isaiah did, is anchored in contemporary historical events which we must know in order to understand Isaiah's message. For instance, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted. It's anchored in to historical events. In that sense, a preterist approach. It's helpful to handling that text. The quote continues. It leaps forward at times to the end of the age in the final cataclysmic day of the Lord, as in chapter 13. A futurist approach can be helpful at that point. Continuing the quote. It makes explicit prophecies about things like the return from exile and the coming of Christ, historical events... The historicist view is helpful in the interpretation of Isaiah at that point. And whatever part you read, you understand that he is speaking of things that are universally relevant, even apart from the historical setting in which they first took place. The idealist school is helpful in handling that text of Scripture. The point is... That the prophets blend and weave these different interpretive schemes together so that no one of them covers the whole book. We see that in Isaiah as our example text. We will see it also in Revelation. It is best not to get anchored into one of those systems of interpretation. The prophets blend and weave these different interpretive schemes together so that no one of them covers the whole book. They're knotted together. It's as though in their prophetic consciences, time collapses. They interpret all events from God's point of view. This is a very helpful statement when it comes to reading Revelation. Don't try to hang with one or the other. Just read what's on the page and see what it's communicating at the time. We don't need to master any one interpretive system. The interpretive systems will come out of the reading of the text itself. All right, so that's point one. Step one through Revelation today. Step two, opening greeting and doxology, verses four through eight. 
Continuing on now with a bit of review from last week, we are introduced here to a third category of genre in verse 4 that will aid our understanding of this book. Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. I told you last week we'll get into that at some point down the road. We will. We're going to leave the seven spirits still for when we get into chapters 4 and 5. I think it'll be more helpful and we'll have more content behind us to appreciate what that likely means. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So, Revelation is not just apocalyptic. It's not just prophecy. It's also epistle. It's a letter. And like every other New Testament letter, we must understand what it meant to the original hearers in order to know what it means for us today. There is a basic principle of Bible interpretation that comes from just reading the text. If we're going to understand and apply one of the letters of the New Testament, we need to know what it meant to the original hearers in order to understand what it means for us. Right? And by the way, I use the word hermeneutics. That's comfortable to many of you. It's not to others. Hermeneutics is just the science of interpreting the scriptures principles of how to interpret. So when I use the word hermeneutics, I'm just talking about how do you read and understand what the text is saying? How do you keep from twisting scripture to say what you want it to say or what you wish it would say rather than what it actually does say? People do that with revelation all the time. They twist it in the direction they believe it should go, they want it to go, they wish it would go. But when we understand that revelation is not just apocalyptic, it's prophetic, so we have those schools of thought that go into understanding it. It's also a letter, so we have to understand what it meant to the original hearers in order to understand what it means for us. This piece of the puzzle alone immediately dismisses a lot of strange and fanciful interpretations of this book. We're going to see some more as we move through the text this morning. So really, even though we did the overview last week in sort of a an opening hints in how to read it. Chapter 1 is still giving us more of those. A doxology exalting Christ follows this identification of Revelation as epistle. So picking up in the middle of verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation is intended to be an exaltation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a message of encouragement to his followers, but it's an exaltation of Jesus primarily at its heart. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is a returning Lord that we're celebrating. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So even those who were against him are going to see him return. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They'll understand the implications of what his return means, I think. is a really summary way to get at that phrase. Even so, John writes, amen. We get more help right here in verse 7. Verse 7 combines a couple of verses from the Old Testament. Daniel 7.13, Zechariah 12.10. Jesus combined the same two verses when he preached his end times message on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, verse 30. So verse 7 combines Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, giving us even more context to help us understand Revelation. And this one, folks, is huge. This is the biggest one we've seen so far, I believe, especially given how we're inclined to twist and turn the meaning of God's word. What's the principle? Here it is. Many of the symbols and images from Revelation are rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, most, the vast majority of the symbols and images are rooted in the Old Testament particularly in Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Zechariah, but also in Genesis and Exodus and Psalms. Hundreds of allusions 
to the Old Testament. Greg Beale, in his commentary, said there is not a single direct quote of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, but there is scarcely a verse without an Old Testament allusion. That's an amazing statement. But it's true. Hundreds of allusions. Several of them have already appeared in our text so far in chapter 1. So here it is. The Old Testament is the primary resource for understanding the imagery and symbolism of Revelation, not present-day news sources. We are not looking to these images, trying to attach them to things that we see in the world around us. That's what leads to a distortion of the meaning of this book, this apocalyptic prophetic letter. We have to understand what it meant for the first century, and we have to understand that the imagery on which John drew almost exclusively came out of the Old Testament. That's where we look for the interpretive meaning. So this is another piece of the puzzle that is absolutely immense in its importance. The Old Testament is the primary resource for understanding the imagery and symbolism of Revelation, not present-day news sources. Verse 8 finishes this introduction just as verse 4 began it. That's how you can see 4 through 8 as a unit. It's alluding to God's name coming out of Exodus 3, 14. I am the eternally existing one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And now, opening vision and direction, verses 9 through 20. And when we come to this section, we're back to the story that I said a few minutes ago. We, we need some more introductory material before we can move on, all right? Well, now with verse 9, we're back into the story of chapter 1, all right? We're back into the story when John heard that loud voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turned to see who was there, verse 12. And as he turned, before him was a field of seven golden lampstands with one like a son of man standing among them. Verse 13. This language, son of man, is familiar. It's one of these allusions that goes directly back to the Old Testament. It recalls the vision of Daniel chapter 7. There it was a messianic figure, the son of man. The son of man was presented before the ancient of days who was seated on his throne. God himself seated on his throne and... The Son of Man presented before him. And this Son of Man in that setting before the very throne of God was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Daniel seven fourteen. And Daniel added that his dominion, the dominion of this Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is Messiah. The Son of Man is the eternal Son of God become flesh who's going to inherit the kingdoms of the earth. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite name for himself in the Gospels. So this we know, what John saw is Jesus this is a vision of the Son of Man, the resurrected Christ, Jesus himself. Moving on through the text, the longer a leader's robe back then, the greater his authority. This one is literally, if it were literally translated, it is to the foot. New International Version says reaching down to his feet. ESV just says long, but it's literally to the foot. He had, verse 13, a golden sash around his chest. And verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Again, recalling the ancient of days, that's exactly how he was described in Daniel 7, 9. But even though his hair was white like wool, this is no tired old man. You can see that in verse 14, his eyes were like flames of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. No feet of clay here like in Nebuchadnezzar's statue of iron and clay mixed together in the feet. The feet of this one were like burnished bronze. Hard and firm and heavy 
stable. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. How far away can you hear a waterfall? How far away can you hear a mighty rushing river? If you're standing on the banks, how loud do you have to talk to be heard over a mighty rushing river? You have to shout. His voice was like the roar of many waters. When the surf is crashing in on a windy day at the ocean, how loud is the noise? How, yeah, there, there's no way to ignore it or look past it or pretend it's not there. It is going to be a part of whatever you're doing at the moment, just the sound that's in your ears. Verse 16, in his right hand, that's the hand of power in apocalyptic writing. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Yikes. I hope John wasn't close to him. I actually once heard a seminary professor say that this was a literal sword because there's no like or as here in the text. Do you think a literal sword was protruding from Jesus' mouth? No. Of course not. This is an image of the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews uses a similar image in chapter 4, verse 12, not suggesting a linkage between the two, but this is the Word of God coming out of the mouth of Jesus. We need to be careful when we insist that revelation be taken literally. John uses many symbols, and those symbols convey true, literal meaning. But they're symbols, and they have to be treated as symbols. We'll say more about that as we progress as well. Continuing in verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Picture that. How do you look at that? I mean, how do you look? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We have to say, if we're following John here, we have to say, of course you did. Who wouldn't? But he laid his right hand on me. I love that that's in the next verse. Do you know why I love that that's in the next verse? Because it gives us another hint about how to read apocalyptic. If the sword itself weren't enough to say, you've got to let symbols stand as symbols. We've got it here. Do you think Jesus had to put down the seven stars in his right hand in order to put his hand on John? No. Jesus didn't have to put down the seven stars. Apocalyptic can mix metaphors. That's worth writing down. Because if we try to make sense out of everything that we see, if we try to draw pictures of every image that's, that's described in Revelation, we're going to run into conflicts like this. If you're trying to draw the right hand on this resurrected Christ, is it going to be holding seven stars or is it going to be laying on John's shoulder? It's not a picture. Some of them are pictures, and pictures are helpful, but pictures can be limiting. If somebody can show me how you can hold seven stars in your right hand and also comfort a brother with that same hand, show me the picture, and we'll see how it goes. But don't let that get in the way of your interpretation of this book. I know some who would get to that snag, and they wouldn't be able to move past it. Well, is he holding the stars or is he comforting John? The answer is yes. This is the eternal son of God. He made the universe, all right? He can do this stuff. How? I don't know. There's a lot of things Jesus can do that I don't know how he does. But he's God. And that's worth noting in the text, pointing it out, this reference to the right hand, right back to back. It helps us learn how to read apocalyptic. 
So he put his right hand on me, John says, completing verse 17, saying, fear not. I love that. That's what we always need to hear from a heavenly messenger. Fear not. I am the first and the last, Jesus said, and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and hell. Unlimited power. Even over that which we fear most, and there's nothing we fear more than death. Jesus has the keys. He's resurrected. He's defeated this. This is done. And John doesn't need to fear. Bottom line, this is Jesus. John had seen his glory before, Mount of Transfiguration. Now he drank in this whole scene in an instant, the instant that he turned, and he fell on his face in abject worship. And this is how the scene progressed. Then Jesus gives John a charge, verse 19, once again, Write the things that you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. Many call this the outline verse of Revelation, like Acts 1.8 in that book. And I think that's exactly right. The things he's seen are the things that are right here in chapter 1. Those that are, I believe, are the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those will, that will take place after this is just the rest of the book, verses four, or chapters 4 through 22. So I think 119 actually is just that. A, a, a programmatic verse, an outline verse for the remainder of what's to come. And then Jesus starts explaining before revealing these letters to the seven churches. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what we'll start next week, God willing. But today, what's the takeaway this morning? What's the takeaway this morning? I would say just anchor into verse three. Anchor into verse three. There's the takeaway. Read Revelation, hear it, keep it. Read it. Don't think that it's out of reach. But even so, while it is out of reach, know that blessing comes to those who will just read it. So read it. Get familiar with its content. Let it sink in. Second, hear it. Hear it. That just means receive it. Trust it, grasp it, treat it like scripture that was written for your benefit. Receive it in that way. Hear it, drink it into your soul. Ponder it, you might say. And then keep it. That just means obey it. The only way to obey it is to hear it. The only way to hear it is to read it. So there it is. Read it, hear it, keep it. You know, learning to read Revelation is a lot like learning to drive a car. When you first get started, there are so many things to know. I can't believe all the things I've had to tell my kids as we start driving a car, even though they've been riding in a car their whole lives. So many things to pay attention to. All the different things about a car, just learning how to turn it on. How the gear shift works, what the dashboard options are, where to, the turn signals are, the windshield wipers, the power and volume for the radio, what the lights on the instrument panel mean. Then there's the rules of the road, all the symbols on the street signs. I don't know why we can't just use words, but we don't. We use symbols. Speed limits, construction zones. What lane to use and when? Something I would like to note many drivers still haven't learned. <laughs> then there are directions. How do I get to where I'm going? Where do I turn? What are the street names? And then there's the surrounding landscape that help me know where to find other places next time I'm in the area. With all that going on, we can forget that the act of driving is really pretty simple. Just steering wheel, gas, and brakes. We can get so into the rules of the road and the technical issues and the scenery in reading Revelation that we can forget to just 
keep driving through it. Just keep driving. Letting our familiarity with it accumulate, letting it develop, letting it grow toward understanding, but just, just keep driving through it. As you do with every challenging passage of Scripture and grow in your understanding. So there's our charge for today. Read, hear, and keep what is written in this book. Don't let it get more complicated than that. Not from the start. Why? Because the time is near. That's what the book says. We need to understand what that means. So read it, hear it, keep it. For the time is near. Join me now as we pray. And as we do, uh, musicians and communion servers, please come to the front. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this book. Challenging as it is, we just, Lord God, thank you for this book, that you did not leave us alone with regard to our understanding of how to live in days of trial and turmoil and tribulation and hardship and suffering and persecution. And Father, you teach us so much about just that in this book. And yet we can get so caught up in just how you've illustrated persecution that we fail to hear the primary message that's there. Jesus has the keys of death and hell. Following him will always take us in the right direction. And we need to press on in our endurance and that obedience. Father, help us to hear that as we read. And help us increasingly to read this book with profit. And therefore to know the blessing that is promised to those who will do that. Father, make us such a people, I pray. In Jesus' name.